here. Psalms 23. Very familiar psalm, but I'm just taking verse 5. Psalms 23, verse 5. God says, you prepare a table for me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. Now, here's a good question. Who wants to eat there? In the presence of your enemies? Now, some scholars write that it refers to God vindicating you to your enemies, blessing you and proving to your enemies they were false in their accusation. But there's another side to this scripture that's very disquieting, and it's this, that our best meals as believers are on the front line. And the more you avoid conflict, adversity, and the cutting edge of Christianity, the less you have to eat spiritually. The safe Christian is a boring Christian. The no-risk Christian is the highest-risk Christian because that life devoid of struggle, devoid of adversity, is a life devoid of reward, of meaning, of advancement, and growth. An adversary is absolutely vital to your growth. You won't get muscles at the gym if you don't push weight. You won't build strong faith if you don't fight. The Bible says, fight the good fight of faith. The Bible says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. All through the scriptures, it talks about spiritual life and spiritual warfare. I want to talk to you about adversity, the breakfast of champions. Did not Caleb say about the adversaries in the promised land, we are well able to take this land. They are bread for us spiritual nutrition. You won't grow sitting on a church pew. You're going to grow when you face life, marriage, children, money, health, a vision, a purpose, a destiny, and brother, you got to fight for it. The Bible is, you were born not into a nursery, but to battlefield earth. And if you got a comfort zone, you'll never get a miracle. You always get one when you need one, and when you need one is when you take a risk. Enemies create movement. Your present will become permanent without an enemy. Israel would have remained in Egypt if Pharaoh hadn't made it necessary to move. Enemies will unlock your imagination. Enemies will expose your weaknesses. Oh, you didn't know. You, you thought because you knew a verse of Scripture, you had it down. And then the attack comes, and you find out, you're not so hot. Cowboys won three in a row and thought they were pretty hot, then lost two in a row. So an enemy will help you, if you don't know, find out where you're weak. Enemies are the gateway to significance. When you run from an adversary, you delay promotion. Your significance is determined by the enemy you choose to conquer. And everybody, sweetheart, gets an enemy. You will only be known for the enemy who conquers you or the enemy you conquer. Friends create comfort. Enemies create promotion. David would remain unknown, uncelebrated if it hadn't been for that 10 or 12 foot ugly giant named Goliath. When an enemy shows up, promotion is being offered. That is incredible, isn't it? The kind of enemy you're willing to overcome determines the reward you receive. No risk, no reward. You watch the Olympics, people who attempt high difficult dives or difficult maneuvers, or they ride the baddest bull at the rodeo, get more points 
if they're successful because what they attempted was of greater challenge. It's amazing how we settle for good enough is good enough. Gag me. Really. Try that in marriage. Try that in life. Good enough? That's like duct tape. Bondo. That's not real. That is a crummy life. God has an abundant life for everybody here, and it's a great future that God has planned for every one of us. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to do you good, to give you a hope and a promise and a future. So God has no little plan for you, but you're going to have to engage in some risk and some fight. Champions don't eat a non-eventual life, a non-eventful life. No, no. They learn to eat the attack of the enemy and humiliating the enemy by turning what he meant for your destruction into spiritual nutrition, making you a greater person of God than you were before. God wants to strengthen you, and he can't make you a champion if you don't fight. So you have to have an adversary to grow. Lazarus is mentioned in John 11. He's dead. Let me ask you a question. What do you know about Lazarus before the devil killed him? I'll tell you how much you knew. Not much. In fact, Lazarus was not even a key player in the gospel story till Satan messed with him. If the devil had left Lazarus alone, he'd have lived to a ripe old age, probably devoid of any major contribution to revival in Jerusalem. Nah, but Satan couldn't leave well enough alone. So why did he make Lazarus sick and kill him? I believe out of sheer raw spite because Lazarus and his two sisters were close friends of the Lord. So he became a military target. But there's something in this everybody has to understand. A lot of people think of Satan as clever, all-knowing, all-powerful. He is a formidable foe. But he's got a stat sheet on your weaknesses, and he knows what to do to mess you up. And he's got a complete profile on you. Now listen, he can't read your mind. God knows the thought and intent of the heart. Satan reads your words. He can't read your mind. And he'll back you up for generations in your family line and in your life listening to you mouth. And he got a whole profile on you right out of your mouth. But here's the real story about Lazarus. Satan messed with him not out of military wisdom, not, not out of any good strategy, just out of emotional spite. So in the attack on Lazarus, we see no foresight no long-range goal, no environmental impact report or study. But the moment Satan marked him, Lazarus goes from total obscurity to unbelievable influence. Satan had just unintentionally created a monster. That was not his plan. And here's my first point this morning. When Satan attacks you, he runs the risk always of creating a monster. And he needs to know that because that which hits the fan is not evenly distributed. He needs to know that. So, so what did Lazarus become because of his resurrection? Well, instead of being a sleepy friend and a distant associate of Jesus, he becomes a central figure in bringing Christ to fulfillment of prophecy so that all of Jerusalem is in an uproar, putting palm leaves down for Messiah, and a city is shaken and changed. That was not what Satan had in mind, but that's exactly what happened. See, when you come back from the dead, people get out of your way. People listen to what you say. People are curious about you. You attract attention. When you go through a trial, when you go through a struggle, 
And the Bible says, in this world, you will have tribulation. I don't care how nice, moral, clean, how much you pray, serve, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, he says, I've overcome the world. And while you're going through it, people are watching. People were watching that. People he didn't know, people who didn't know Jesus, they were watching. People are watching your struggle. You have more influence than you can imagine. God's working on a lot of people, not just you, through this trial. So you want to be faithful in it so you can be more than a conqueror. In John eleven forty five, 45, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed on him. John 12, verse 9, a great many of the Jews came to see old Laz. Yep. And many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So what did the devil learn from old Lazarus? Nothing. Zip. Nada. Zero. I mean, the learning curve's not there. Because did not the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead portend some events that might be negative to come? I mean, there are certain people, Satan, you ought not try to kill because they come back. Now the Son of God is the target of the devil. He's moved from killing Lazarus to killing the Lord. Bad move. His demons try to tell him over breakfast, boss, don't do this. Remember the Lazarus deal. Now, we're not talking about a little microscopic human being, boss. This is Messiah. And whereas the resurrection of Lazarus was important, this one is indescribable in its implications. You know, raising Lazarus from the dead was like a cigarette lighter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a hydrogen bomb. But did Satan learn? Did he stop? Nope. It says, he provoked the elders of the Jews to take Jesus with cruel hands. And now we see Jesus in the grave. And the devils learned nothing, knew nothing, gained nothing. Yet he persists in his attack. And what he ended up with was not a mere human coming back from the dead like Lazarus that would win a city, create stories that have lived with the devil to torment him for centuries. And every time the Bible gets read, Lazarus' resurrection gets told. And the devil's action created hundreds of sermons and an infinite number of rejoicing services just like this one. But what did the resurrection of Jesus Christ do? It took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. It kicked the devil's teeth in. It created a power that would ultimately, you know, fill the whole universe. It put Christ at the right hand of God the Father, and the devil learned nothing. Zip. Zero. That same lack of learning is evident in arresting the apostles. Every time he arrested an apostle, the retribution was severe. The first one he got was Peter. Put him in prison. An angel let him out. The report came to the church. Great testimony was given, and Satan learned nothing. His right-hand demon said again, boss, don't do that again. Every time you mess with an apostle, we end up with worse problems than we had before. The next time an apostle is arrested, an earthquake destroys the jail. Paul walks out with the keys to the jail in one hand and a convert in the other, and the repercussions are severe. The third time, Satan has Paul arrested again, put in jail for two years. And now, Satan has a sense of relief. Paul hadn't worked any miracles. Paul hadn't gotten out. He hadn't done anything significant. No, except write 75% of the New Testament. See, the greatest sin of modern Christianity is the pursuit of the comfortable Christian life. When Israel was invaded by the Philistines, it says they robbed the nation and closed all of their blacksmith shops lest they make 
weapons. Now, theologically, Satan has repeated that in modern Christianity. Weapons, real weapons, are created in the furnace of adversity. And unfortunately for us, suffering has become a word that's almost a sin in Christian culture today. But when you illegalize suffering, you likewise destroy sacrifice. And when you remove sacrifice, you remove excellence. And you produce styrofoam swords, false faith, people who mouth a make-believe power in God they don't have. And when we consider all of our adversity meaningless, unnecessary, we lose their power to make us monsters for God. If you don't get in the ring, how are you going to be awarded championship? You see, this is not the fight sitting here. This is to equip you for the fight. Remember the parable of the wise man who built his house on the rock, the foolish man who built his house on the sand. If you ever went to Sunday school, we all learned that as a little song. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, I'll paraphrase it. Anybody who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who built his house on solid bedrock. And though the rain comes and the floodwaters come and the winds beat against it, the house stood firm. It would not collapse because it was built on bedrock. But anybody who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is a person who's foolish. He's like somebody that built on sand. And when the storms came and beat against the house, it collapsed with a mighty crash. And that's what happens to people in marriages. That's what happens to young people. They don't build on a foundation of what Jesus said to do. Instead, they follow the culture. They follow uh, changing civil laws. Anything that contradicts God's Word can't be good for you. If God is the creator and sustainer of all life and possesses all wisdom and has a great plan for your life and was willing to die for you, for God's sake, do what He said. You want a good result? Do what He said. I don't think you have to have a college degree. I don't even think you have to have a GED. Just do what he said. Remember what his mother said at the wedding? She told all the servants, just do what he says. And he fed them all with wine. If people say, well, what kind of a church is Summit? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. That's the kind we are. Where does that put you? I don't know. That's going to violate a Democrat, violate a Republican, violate an independent. That's going to violate everybody at some point. Any place you're not obeying him, it's going to bump you. That's amazing to me, right? So the key is, if it's clear Scripture and God says do it, you're going to get a good result from doing it. And I want a storm-proof life. Not a life devoid of any storm, but one that won't fall when the storms come. And I watch people, this is my job, I watch people collapse like an accordion. Come undone like a cheap sweater. First time problems hit. Well, the doctor said, okay, that's a natural report. What is, the, what is the report we're going to believe? Yeah. What, by the stripes of Jesus, I am being healed. He sent His Word to heal me. I am begotten of God. The wicked one touches me not. He sent His Word to heal me, to deliver me. from I'm throwing it right back at the enemy. We're in the fight. And I'm going to use Scripture to fight back just like Jesus did. Yeah. I'm not going to roll over and say, well, I guess this is it. Yeah. Not on your life. Yeah. I'm going to be Clint Eastwood. Go ahead. Make my day. church has gotten so wussy. You have to talk sweet. You don't want to offend anybody. Let somebody get upset. For God's sake, if we don't produce tougher people, I don't know what's going to happen to us. You do, you, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Those are commands from Scripture. 
Somewhere in the last 40 years within the charismatic church, it became fashionable to believe that as a privileged child of God, I'm I'm above the need of a storm or the obligation to even prepare for them. That it's negative to admit I even had a problem. That somehow even a runny nose could be prevented. So the wise man builds his house on a rock because he accepts as part of his existence storms. Let me tell you, the devil wants all of us to believe we won't go through a storm. He wants us to be idiots. So there are two extremes in the church. Listen, number one. One says rebuke all storms and build your faith on sand. But you cannot justify building on bedrock for any other reason than the inevitability and existence of storms. They're coming. If there's no storms, heck, you can build on anything, right? Sand is as good a place to build as any if there aren't any storms. Now, the other extreme is believing all trouble, all sickness, all failure, all poverty is an inevitable part of life, that we have no choice in the matter, God's not even interested, and that somehow God is a mysterious force above wanting to give any of us good things. And when we get to heaven, He will explain His poverty spirit. Eh, that is unscriptural. Third John, verse 2, I wish above all things that you might prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. So the rule would be God wants you to do well. God wants you to be healthy. I do realize there will be a day when you die. It is appointed unto man once to die. Can we settle that? Of course. But if you don't have that word, then I'm going with Scripture. God wants me to prosper, and God wants me to be in health. I'm going with what God says. But I realize That if I pray and God allows me to continue to decrease in some kind of an infirmity, then my time is up. We all have limited time on earth, but nobody has, uh, everybody got a shelf life, right? And you don't know when it, it ends. So don't roll over and play dead just because you got a bad report. Fight back. If God hadn't told you this is it, then fight for it. Fight for your life. Fight for your health. Fight for your destiny, for your dream. Don't roll over and just say, okay. Yes, who is it? It's the flu. The flu, yeah, it's going around. Hadn't you heard? Won't you let me come in? Everybody's got it. Oh, everybody's got Okay. Come on in. Nonsense. Nonsense. We wrestle not could be the cry of many Christians. They don't fight anything. They just say, well, it's going around, so we ought to prepare. Let's just, re- let's just expect our kids to get it. I'm not going to expect our kids to get it. I'm going to fight for those kids. Thank you, Lord. My kids are begotten of God. The wicked one touches them not. I cover them in the blood of Jesus. I break this curse and say that flu virus will not come here. I will fight it. But what if it comes? I'll still fight it so it's a short duration and get medical attention. But I'm going to fight with every weapon I have. Y'all look like a raccoon looking at the headlights of an 18-wheeler on I-35. This is really simple stuff. Psalms 37, 25. I've been young, now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor the children begging bread. So here's the blending and balances of those two extremes. Storms will come, but I can build a life that will give me victory over those things when they come. I don't have a choice over what will come. But I do have a choice on what I will build on, where I will build, how I will store up, and how I will react in my attitude. 
so that I am promised by the Lord that when I blend my will with his goodness and his word, I will win in every front of battle in Jesus' name. Not only will I win, but I can get to the point I make adversity my breakfast, and I become a champion in Jesus' name. I mean, who you want to talk to in trouble? You want to talk to somebody that's never been tested? You, you girls going to have a baby, your first baby? You going to talk to some little Barbie doll? No, I'm going to talk to some woman that looked like an 18-wheeler ran over her, and she got tread marks, stretch marks, and three or four kids. I'm going to say, tell me what to expect. I'm not going to go to my bro- broke uncle who's broker in the Ten Commandments and get financial advice. And that's what Christians do. Nonsense. I'm going to get somebody with proven achievement in the area I'm in a fight with. And so when you go through a battle and win, you've got something to share with somebody to strengthen and encourage them. Now God says, don't waste it. Now I suspect the apostle Peter had a fear in praying for the crippled man at the gate, beautiful. The Lord had already marked Peter for martyrdom. How would you like to get that word? Everybody wants a word from the Lord. Well, he, God told him, you're going to be crucified upside down. Well, Merry Christmas. Praise the Lord. And that's the word God gave him. Now, Peter was, was impulsive, but he wasn't stupid. He knew when Jesus' controversy began, when he began to pray for the sick and see miracles. So Peter could foresee that the man at the gate, beautiful, begging, would get up and walk if he prayed for him. Revival would come, and so would horrible persecution. So I suppose that Peter, every day, bought another day of powerless ministry by putting a coin in that beggar's cup. Until one day in his mercy, the Lord prevented Peter from taking that coin with him. And after searching for it diligently, Peter said to the beggar, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I to thee. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And he did. And that safety Peter had sought, the false security of a non-committed life, now didn't mean anything to him. So the crippled man walks, Peter goes to the next level, they arrest him as he suspected. But instead of finding the fear and disaster, he's turned into a monster by Satan's attack. And now Peter tells the officials of the city he will not stop speaking the things he's seen and heard from the Lord Jesus. When Peter decided to call the devil's bluff, he found the grace and the glory of God and a great movement of God was released. You prepare a table before me, in the presence of my enemies. Therefore, I have made these decisions. I'm not going to avoid my enemy. I'm going to get in his face in Jesus' name. The mafia knows keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Ever wonder why wrestling, that model of combat, was chosen for us in our fight with the devil? Wrestling is the only form of hand-to-hand combat where you never lose physical contact with the adversary. And in every day and in every way, we press the attack on the enemy. We take land we didn't have before. We take and boldly tell him, I'm going to squander you. I'm going to ruin you in Jesus' name, not in my own strength or volition, but in making him understand that from this moment on, as a believer in Jesus Christ, this will be my spiritual posture. I'm in total, complete anger, rage, and opposition to you. Satan, I'm against you on all fronts. I take everything you want to do with me, my wife, my children, my business, our ministry, whatever it is, I take it personally. I'm vigilant. I'm sober-minded. I'm militant. I will be a nightmare for you. And when you flex, I'll be there. And when you attack, I'm ready. 
I will plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I will overcome you with the word of my testimony, Revelation 12, and I will be faithful to God and filled with his Holy Spirit. And Satan, I set you on public record that from this moment on, I will learn the skill of turning your attacks to God's advantage so that when you mess with me, you're going to get messed with back worse than before. And when you attack, I will grow. So what will happen as a result of eating adversity for breakfast? You get the eye of the tiger. Every soldier that has been in battle knows and recognizes someone with the eye of the tiger in a man who's been hit by the enemy, and now they're back, back with a vengeance and a determination that's unyielding. The enemy hit me with his best shot. He should have taken me out, but he didn't. But now I'll never let him fool me that way again. And every one of us has been hit, but not twice, right? I'm saying, I won't do that again. I won't make that kind of a choice again. Uh, I could have been killed. I didn't, but I'm back. I'm smarter. I'm wiser. You know, when you're, I remember in high school football when I was a kid, they would always make us play against big, bigger teams preseason. And the whole idea was to find out where you were weak and where you were strong. And you don't know till you have an adversary. And so you come back after getting beat up and you strengthen what was wrong so you can now compete competitively and perhaps win against that adversary. The fierceness of a soldier wounded who recovers is phenomenal. The Christian who's never been attacked, never been in battle, can't have an eye of the tiger. And you can tell when they're a hollow, wimpy counterfeit of somebody that's been to the rodeo and got a t-shirt. See, the three Hebrew children were friends before they went in the furnace. But how many know they had an incredible friendship when they came out of that furnace? You talk about male bonding, it's going on in that furnace. Woo! And so one of the nutrients of the breakfast of champions is you get the eye of the tiger. You also get another gift, a weapon, a weapon. You get something new in every attack. When a 17-year-old boy named David attacks a 12-foot giant named Goliath, he hits him with a pebble with his slingshot. This was not Goliath's view of how he would go out into eternity. And how was he killed? Oh, not by the rock. It knocked him out, but it didn't kill him. Goliath, Scripture says, died by his own sword. David killed Goliath with the sword of Goliath. Now whose weapon is it? It's David's. Years later, David's running from Saul, his adversary. He's got no weapon. He's exhausted. He's hungry. He finds a priest. He asks for showbread to eat. And then he asks, is there any weapon here? And the priest says, none. Oh, except the sword of Goliath, whom you killed. And a chill goes down David's spine as he remembers that battle with that adversary is going to now come back and give him a permanent dimension so that he is now knows that that battle with Goliath is now paying future dividends in this new battle. See, if I can kill a bear and I can kill a lion, when the giant shows up, I reckon he's mine too. And God will strategically move you up just like that. So if you analyze some of your heartbreaking experiences, you're going to discover that in the wake of those tough times, you came out with an ability to fight and a gift to fight you didn't have before. You can't have that if you haven't been in the fight. But if you've been in the fight and come through it, I had something I'd, I can look back at stuff that concerned me when I was younger, but having been through it, I don't sweat that at all. There may be new challenges, bigger challenges, but that stuff's kindergarten. 
And if you've been a Christian five years or ten years, you ought to have some kindergarten stuff behind you. You shouldn't be wrestling with simple stuff like unforgiveness, bitterness, just simple stuff. you got to get smart in this game. You become an edifier after you come out of conflict, a comforter, a source of strength for those around you. Because you've been there, done it, and they know it. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the Lord God of all comfort, who comforts us in every trial, so we may be able to comfort those who are likewise in suffering and give them the same comfort we receive from the Lord. So God wants you to share the good news of victory that you had. See, by cutting off the breakfast of champions from our walk with God, we've made satanic attack meaningless and a confusing blip on the roadmap to prosperity. We don't see any use for it. We go into denial. I don't know why this has happened. I don't know why that's happened. Stephen had been killed by an angry lynch mob of religious leaders. And no sooner did he face the adversaries, profess Christ, and get stoned to death, here comes a new weapon. Holding his coat is the next weapon of God, the Apostle Paul. Oh, Paul didn't know it yet, but he's going to be the big weapon created by Stephen's departure. Every attack of the enemy brings a new dimension into your life. I can look back in my life of living and realize that in every crisis, I came out stronger than I was before. I came out better than I was before. And that ought to be the same in your life. Oh, it's awful going through it. Sure it is. Nobody finds that fun. But if you defeat the enemy and you come through it, you don't sweat it as much if it rises up again because you've already been through it. You're right. So you can say this morning, ah, Rick, come on. I don't want anything bad to happen. I don't want any storm to happen. But what will not happen is growth and power and weaponry, and comfort, and solace, and strength, and promotion, and great victory. Because every time Satan attacks you, he leaves himself wide open to a response from God. And the devil's got to understand that when he attacks you, he's made a heinous, superior, world-class, epic mistake, because you're going to get him back, and you're going to be filled with God to know exactly how to do it. The child of God who learns to embrace and respond in a godly way to adversity will grow, become stronger and lethal, and the Lord will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Satan attacks those he fears. Look at your soul and ask, what is it in me that scares the enemy the most? Why did he put all hell online to stop me? That's a good question. See, he sees your future before you do. He sees your potential before you do. And he tries to kill it like sudden infant death syndrome. Before you grow to that place God has for you, he tries to cut you off, cut you down, steal, kill, and destroy. Folks, if you knew that in you was all authority through Christ, that you could tread on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy, that you could bind and loose, that you had the authority to cast out demonic powers, then no financial situation, no health situation or infirmity would panic you, would concern you, but would not panic you because you carry a treasure in you. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you are a king and a priest unto God. So take on your adversary, anger, greed, lust, unforgiveness, substance abuse, addiction, whatever it is, defeat the enemy and receive, as he said, 
promotion, prosperity, and a time of rest for your soul. Adversaries are not to be feared. They're to be defeated and overcome. This morning, amen. Amen. Folks, you got to fight. You got to get fight. It's nasty. It hurts. Nobody likes it. But Jesus went to the cross and provided for us defensive weapons and an offensive weapon. He's given us authority. He's given us power of attorney to use his name. You talk about opening a door, name dropping, you drop that name of Jesus down. Demons tremble. And God says, I haven't left you helpless. I've made you more than a conqueror. Now, you put on the whole armor of God. You submit to God. You resist the devil. He will flee from you. And when Jesus resisted him, he quoted scripture. So will you. It's all right if you haven't memorized it, but you could put it on paper, notepad, an iPad, and you can simply quote it out loud every day. You can take it to work. You can do it in the bathroom, shower. You can do it shaving. And you quote that against the problem you're facing, whatever it happens to be. Now, before we close and we're, I'm done, I want to do one more thing. If you're battling an infirmity this morning, some health issue, just to give you a model of how we do this, I want you just to stand up. I'm going to pray. Come on. You're battling some sort of a physical infirmity. You say, well, I've had it 20 years. Well, let's see if we couldn't get rid of it. Unless you've grown accustomed to it and house trained it and you want to keep it. I don't want it. I don't have to keep an inherited curse in my genetic line. Jesus redeemed me from the curse that the blessings of Abraham may come on me by being made a curse for me. So I don't need a curse, but if I don't resist it, it's like a thief. He'll come in my house and he'll take everything I've got. It's illegal, but he wasn't resisted. And I've been robbed twice. I know what that feels like. So I'm saying to you, resist the enemy. So I'm going to pray out loud. And I want you to pray out. Don't mumble. Pray out loud. And I don't have anything memorized. I'm just quoting scripture and showing you how to take an aggressive stance over your health issue, a child's health issue, whatever it may be. Say, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I make this profession in faith believing. By your stripes, I have been healed. Your words are life and health to all my flesh. I am begotten of God. The wicked one touches me not. By the stripes of Jesus, I am being healed. I shall be healed in the name of Jesus. Lord, I take authority over infirmity, disorder, sickness, and disease that has touched my body. I rebuke it in the authority of Jesus' name. I command it to go. I command the disorder to stop. I break the curse that's come through my family into my body in Jesus' name. You have no legal right to me, and I rebuke you and resist you in the name of Jesus. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I put you on notice, Satan, that I am the temple of God, that I will fight you, I will resist you, I believe for my body to come under the authority of God. Every gland, every organ will function in the perfection that God created you to function. And I rebuke disorder in Jesus' name. I rebuke high blood pressure. I curse cancer. I say those cells will not grow. 
will not divide, will not multiply, you will die. I hold the blood of Jesus, the name of Jesus against you. Lord, thank you for healing in my body. Thank you for victory in Jesus' name. Now somebody shout amen, come on. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.